We are in Zechariah. I've got two sets of notes for you. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9. We talked about last week. These are some of the notes from last week. I want to finish them up. And then we're going to move into Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 10. So we'll say 9, 9 through probably 11, Zechariah. Now, chapter 9, 9 is the first coming, Jesus' first coming. Chapter 9, 10 is going to be his second coming or the introduction of what he's going to do and then the establishment of his kingdom this right here he's going to come on a donkey he's going to come in peace the kingdom is ready if you're ready this is going to be played out now we have the new testament as an advantage so we know that this is him offering coming in peace you ready and they reject him but he also rejects them and we'll we'll see that because he says your house has left you desolate. I mean, he wasn't happy with the people. They weren't happy with him. And so that puts this whole thing on hold. In chapter 9, verse 11, uh, I'm looking here in the, in the NIV. I'm going to read it real quickly. Uh, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. And so verse 9, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'm going to free your prisoners. So right here, they reject him, and they had been regathered for the coming of the Messiah. In fact, that's what all of this is about with uh, Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah, the rebuilding of the temple. They've been regathered, preparing for the day of the Lord's coming. Well, he comes, they reject him, he rejects them, and they're scattered again. The Roman dispersion, 70 A.D., well, then, starting in chapter 9, verse 10, they start talking about Yahweh now coming and, 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 and fighting for him, gathering him back together. And verse 11 tells you why this was possible, because of my covenant with you. Now, it says the blood of my covenant, and I'll, I'll show you. That's most likely, you know, you think of Jesus saying this is the blood of the new covenant that could be connected to it. But this is talking to the Jewish people, the blood of my covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant that says, you are my people. If you disobey, I'll punish you, disperse you, but I will bring you back. So because of why is he coming back and regathering the people? Because of the Mosaic covenant, I will bring you back. And then it starts talking about uh, what we can say, some eschatological events. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, where he begins to fight battles with the nations and establish his kingdom. So, chapter 9, page 1 of the notes. I'll just read off in the English Standard Version on page 1 of the notes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And again, we talked about that last week. That's them. It's imperative. They're commanding the people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, the daughters, the women, because the women would be the ones that would sing songs of victory or sing laments of defeat because of what happened out on the battlefield. They're being told, it commanded, rejoice and shout, and that's the battle cry, a battle cry of victory, because behold, look, your king is coming to you uh, righteous, having salvation, and he is humble. Three things, righteous, he is righteous, he is a good, fair judge, uh, having salvation, he himself, and we'll talk about this again, this is going to be important because we're talking about the king, which is a man, and Yahweh, who is the Lord God, and they are, if you allow me to say it, two separate voices in here. In fact, many times these two verses, other places, Isaiah, 
especially in the Qumran community, they had two messiahs. They've got this, they've got this, because these are two different events. They, they didn't know how to play it. Now, if you take out the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we come back and we try to figure this out, we would be, obviously, confused. But we read a lot, of, get a lot of information from gos- the Gospels because they quote this very verse and they identify that point in time, but they leave this hanging. So Yahweh is going to be the one who delivers the king, and the king is going to be the one who brings salvation to the people. But first, the king needs deliverance. The king needs salvation. He needs to count on the Lord. And then as the king, the counting on the Lord, you can now bring victory to the people. Think of David. David facing Goliath didn't go off and in the name of David fight Goliath. He came at him with the name of the Lord. He defeated Goliath, and David brought victory to Israel. That is the role of the king. Now, what's going to ultimately end up happening is Yahweh is going to become the king. And this is where it gets confusing. I mean, it's not. But if you don't accept this, uh, there's, there's things that just you have continue to have these stumbling blocks like they had in the Old Testament. Yahweh is going to become the incarnation. He's going to become the man, the Messiah. It's God himself. So he's Yahweh, but he's giving the victory to the king, which is himself. And so that's why he's going to end up saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am, and David and his family were the shadow or the type. They were the 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 example of Yahweh bringing deliverance but they are always told there's going to be the son of David that's going to come and he was going to be well he's going to be God he's going to be the Lord himself well if it's the Lord who's going to deli- who's who's going to well the Lord's delivering the Lord the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand and we'll look at all that so that's what's taking place and that's point two on page one uh, it says the first coming of Christ is nine nine the second coming is nine ten I'm turning the page three of the notes, this first section, point 10. It says, your king. Uh, that was Yahweh marching through Alexander. Then eventually, when Alexander turned to come into Jerusalem, uh, Yahweh began to defend the city. But now we're talking about another king coming. Uh, point D, Yahweh is speaking in 9.9 saying, when it says, behold, your king is coming, that is Yahweh speaking to the Jews about the king. It is Yahweh speaking to the Israelites, the Jews, about the man, the king coming. Behold, your king comes. Uh, And under point D where it says, Yahweh, God is speaking in 9.9, saying your king is saved or is coming with righteousness, salvation, and humble, uh, both divine Yahweh saying the royal king and the human royal son of David is saved by Yahweh, the humble king. And that's, again, that ideal of humble. We left off of that. He's righteous, having salvation, having both received salvation and bringing then that salvation. And then the word, I think, is ani. In the Hebrew, it means humble, meaning he doesn't have it of his own. He needs someone to bring it to him, to deliver him. And so he's humble, he's gentle, different words that are used to describe that. But once he's got the deliverance, you can see very quickly, he's going to come back and be the, the mighty king. Point two under D, Psalm 72. Uh, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So when it talks about O God, they're talking about 
it would be Solomon or David, the king there, uh, giving justice to him, righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people. Now notice, God is giving the king the justice, the righteousness, and then the king is in that position dispensing it to the people. May he judge your people with righteousness because he's received righteousness from the Lord and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance or salvation to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Uh, The bottom of page three, point three at the very bottom, Zephaniah chapter three, verse 14 through 15. I've got that in the Hebrew text on the very next page. But just, I, I read it last week, but I want to read it again and, and hear how familiar it sounds. This is in Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. You know, shouting with victory. O daughter of Jerusalem. There's daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, so your judgments, your sins, they've been removed. Your enemies have been removed. The King of Israel, the Lord. Now again, that, where I'm going to show you some verses where it's very clear. The King of Israel, the Lord. I'll show you a verse if, when we get to it. Isaiah, he sees the King, the Lord. So Isaiah and some of the writers of the Old Testament, they're seeing, when they see the Lord... They're seeing the king. And so it's almost like uh, what that takes place is Jesus' ministry where he becomes the, the Messiah, the king, but it's the Lord. That's, that's the way it is. He is the king, and it's just going to be manifesting as the man. Uh, but anyway, Zephaniah uh, says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Uh, turn the page. We're rushing through this as a review. Point, page 4, point 11. The king will come to you with the benefits. And here are those words. One is righteous, having salvation, number two. And then turning to page 5, it's point D. Um, Annie means poor, afflicted, humble, and is translated humble or lowly or gentle. It's the ideal of having being poor in a poor condition and without adequate supply. Um, I read this last week. Isaiah 53 identifies the Messiah the same way. Uh, he grew up before him. He, the, the man, grew up before him, the Lord, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground coming out of David's stump that had been cut down. He had no beauty or majesty. That would refer to glory of God. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 63, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. That was the Messiah at his first coming. He needed, again, be careful as you say this, he needed deliverance. He needed help. He needed raising from the dead. I mean, he is God. You can see him healing people. You see him walking on water, commanding demons. But as a man, he is going to need Yahweh's deliverance. He was despised, and we esteemed him, and we, and we held him in low esteem. And again, he's going to then fulfill all those requirements that the man would need. Ah, I ended up with this last week, and I, I don't want to make a big deal about it. I did try to figure it out, and I think I've got more information here than you need on page six. Uh, he, the, the, the donkey, gentle and riding on a donkey. 
Um, you've got the word donkey. You've got the word, which is also translated different places, ass. I'm not going to write it on the board because of the camera, and it'll be like, what's, what's going on in this video up here? Uh, donkey, uh, uh, mule, and then horse. And a donkey is a purebred. A mule is a hybrid between a, a mule and a horse. And, and then a horse, of course, is a horse. The horse is going to be a, an animal of war. A king riding on a horse is coming in battle. A king or a ruler coming on a donkey is coming in peace. It's already established. He doesn't need to bring a sword. He's just coming in. You know, it's like coming in on a, you know, a, a presidential parade in a Corvette or something. Uh, coming on a horse would be coming on a battle, you know, a, 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 you know, and. Uh, you know, a battleship or a, a plane. A mule was used, was eventually going to replace a donkey, what they're most likely imported because it's a breed, it's, a, it's an animal between a horse and a donkey. And so although they appear in Scripture later on in David's day, uh, like David rode on a mule or he put his son on a mule, uh, they were probably imported. They were hybrids. They were not necessarily in obedience to the law. The donkey would be, uh, according to the law of Moses, would be a purebred. So here it is, the breakdown. Uh, donkey is identified as a colt in, 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 in Zechariah 9. The donkey that the king is coming on is identified as a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, this donkey has been born of a donkey. So this donkey here, the mother, is a purebred. They would have had a donkey for a father and a donkey for a mother. So they are a donkey, and they've had an offspring, which is a donkey. It's a purebred from a purebred because both their parents, both parents were purebreds. It's, it's acceptable. It's a clean animal. A mule would not be. And the big deal, it's not a horse. It's not a horse. It's not a mule. It's a purebred donkey, which is acceptable. Uh, then uh, Judges. I've got these verses in Judges. And this is interesting because this goes out throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these are some leaders. Like when they were a judge, they'd have, they'd ride on a donkey or their sons would ride on donkeys. So here's just three verses out of Judges uh, dealing with leaders, judges, rulers, riding on donkeys. Tell of it. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, which refer to their wealthy elite, the ruling class, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, the working middle class. So that's Deborah talking about singing a song. We go back into that detail. But the difference, some people walk along the way. The elite are riding donkeys. They're riding white donkeys. Judges 10.4. And he, Israel's judge Jair, the Gileadite, so Jair, had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. That means the judge had 30 sons, and all of them had an, an inheritance or some kind of rulership riding on a donkey. Uh, Judges 12, 14, he, Abnon, son of Hillel, had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. So the emphasis there is he was a great ruler, and he had a great family of inheritance or a, a, a lineage, and they all rode on donkeys. Now, mules pop up in 1 Kings and 2 Samuel. Mules are a domestic hybrid between a donkey and a horse. A mule is the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. So the male donkey uh, is going to 
impregnate a female horse, and they'll give birth, give birth to a mule. Since mules is a, cro- a mule is a crossbred, and since crossbreeding was prohibited, Leviticus 19.19, 19, mules were likely imported. And notice when they show up. They show up about the time David establishes his kingdom, starts trading with Egypt. Solomon's in on it, you know, later on is in on it. Um, once Israel started importing with success, David, and even more during the reign of Solomon, these mules became more valuable, and in the culture they replaced the donkey. Again, not that that was right, that's just the way it happened. The mule became the new donkey. Kind of like the electric cars replacing the gasoline engine today. Well, maybe not. Um, But anyway, here's some verses here. 1 Kings 10, 24. Solomon began to import crossbred mules since it was against the law to cross people. I guess I wrote that. That's not, I was reading like it was scripture. Quote, the whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Now, that's exactly what they're going to do when Jesus returns. The world's going to go to hear Jesus. What are you saying? Year after year, each visitor would bring his tribute. So you'd have to bring a tribute to Solomon to have an audience to say, how do we fix our economy? Articles of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. So there's a clear, they're importing them. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he stationed in chariot cities. Okay, 2 Samuel 13, 29. So the servants of Absalom, Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had, had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. So there's an assassination. One of the brothers of sons of David is killed by another son of David. And all the other sons who had been there at the party, they all go... You know, shots have been fired, gunshot. They all jumped on, they all ran out to the parking lot, jumped on their mule and escaped. So David's sons, his royal sons, having a royal party where one of them gets killed by somebody else, they're riding mules. Second Samuel 16, 2, Mephibosheth, that would be Saul's son. Well, I got it written there, Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son. Uh, it goes all the way through that. He brought supplies uh, to Absalom when he was fleeing. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer. So he brought David as he was fleeing Absalom some donkeys. Second Samuel, Absalom was riding on a mule when he got his hair caught in the tree. Uh, First Kings 1, then David's, okay, this is when uh, David is going to give Solomon the, the, the kingship. Then David said, uh, said, call in for me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and then Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. That would be the mighty man, one of the warriors. So they came before the king, and he says, Take my servants with you, and said the king, Set my son Solomon on my own mule, and take him down to Gion. Uh, that's the Gion Springs, right where the, the, uh, the Hezekiah's tunnel begins. Uh, kind of where the Kidron Valley meets the Hinnom Valley. You can see the place right there. And uh, you are to blow the ram's horn and declare, long live King Solomon. So again, he's on the mule. So again, that's just, again, an indication of how they're used. Uh, The real difference in the context of Zechariah is the donkey that this king is coming on is not a horse. This is just some background information uh, that's not a mule. But it's the fact that they go a donkey, the, the foal of a donkey, is there they're making a big deal that it's a purebred the fact that it's a donkey and not a horse is making a big deal about it it's in time of peace there's no need for a battle here just accept the kingdom 
Now, again, Jesus is going to come back on a horse later. Uh, the, uh, the ruling authority rode donkeys and mules. Okay. Uh, the terms, point D, the terms used to describe the animals, you can see them, a hamor, a male donkey, an ayer, a male donkey, a ben, a foal, a tanat, a female donkey. Um, and I got some more details in. You turn, here's the text right there, and I've got them in a square for you. There's, they're in the squares for you, the Hebrew text of Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, you can see where it's got donkey in a square, a colt in a square, and I got the words broken down there. And then Jesus fulfilled Zach point 13 on page 8. Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9, 9, according to Matthew and John. I'm going to read to you Matthew's account, please. Uh, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Bethphage is on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So if this is uh, Jerusalem, this is the Kidron Valley coming down here. Uh, the Mount of Olives is right here. How are you going to draw that? It's a mountain right there, a mound. On the backside is Bethphage right here. Jesus is going to come up and over go in on the eastern gate of the city. And he's going to be greeted by crowds. You're going to go out to meet him and escort him into the city on a donkey. Now this should be a reminiscence of what happens to the north when Alexander comes on a horse. He's on a horse ready to approach Jerusalem to destroy it. But the high priest goes out with all the people in white, all the, high pri- or the priesthood in their garments. They meet Alexander, and he comes in on a horse, and the priest runs alongside of him and runs in, and he worships in this very temple right here as a Gentile. So they, they bred, brought him in on a horse to worship. And, and remember, that was, according to Zechariah earlier in chapter 9, that was the Lord marching through Syria, marching through Tyre, uh, uh, Philistine, uh, the Gaza, and then as Alexander approached Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord says, I'll defend it. And Alexander didn't defeat Jerusalem. He ended up coming and worshiping. So the Lord was, in a sense, through, you know, it says right there, the Lord was coming. And you wonder, it doesn't say it in Josephus' account, but we wonder if, if uh, the Jaduah, the priest, used this chapter 9 to figure out, well, it says he had a vision and a dream. The Lord assured him it'd be fine. But right here, it says, he, what Alexander was going to do and that the Lord would defend his city, that Jadua knew if I just go out there and meet, the Lord is going to protect the city. I mean, that would be a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, with the point, Jesus is doing, in a sense, the same thing coming from the east because, again, in Ezekiel, the Lord comes from the east. He descends from the Mount of Olives and comes in from the glory of God, approaches the new temple from the east. So Jesus is in the right position but he's coming in on a donkey. The crowd, just like they ran out to meet Alexander, they're going to go meet Jesus. But they went to meet Alexander on his horse, his famous horse. They're going to go out to meet Jesus on the donkey, what we'd say, the, the famous donkey. And so here it is. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the backside of the Mount of Olives, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village, Beth, Bethphage, uh, in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So uh, we don't know the story and what was going on there, but the, they knew, oh, the Lord, oh, this is the moment. Maybe they're familiar with this verse. 
Maybe Jesus says, I'm going to need these someday. We don't know the background, the arrangement. It doesn't need to be some spooky miracle. It could be just an arrangement we don't know about. And you just go tell them and do this, and you'll see them sitting right there. They're, they're ready to go. Um, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this is clearly 9-9 of Zechariah. Um, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Um, and again, I point these things out. Notice the donkey Jesus rides on is not the foal of a horse, but the foal of a beast, a burden, or a donkey. Jesus was in no way riding a horse or a foal of a horse. Jesus came as a ruling royalty in peace, just like you saw in, in when the king's sons were at a party. They're having a party riding their mules or the sons of the judges. They had donkeys. Jesus came as a ruling royalty in peace to a kingdom at peace. Jesus did not come as royalty at war to a kingdom at war. He came at peace. We're good to go. They were not, and he says, neither am I. John 12, 12 through 16, the next day, the same story, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, just like they heard Alexander was coming from the north. They heard Jesus was coming, so they're going to rush out to meet him. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, quoting Psalms. And uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So, you know, I would think that if I'm there that day, oh my gosh, this is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. I can't believe I'm seeing it be fulfilled right in front of my eyes. I, I would not. I would not have understood what was going on. It's like, why do we have to get the donkey? I mean, there, we could have just got one right over here. Why do we have to go here? We could have got a horse. We could have, he could have walked. What, what, you know, who, who knows what I would be saying? I'd be complaining about something. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, the emphasis there being a purebred. His, and coming in peace. His disciples did not understand. Okay, I read that. They remembered the, okay. Uh, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, now that would mean having risen into heaven off the Mount of Olives, he had already gone into heaven. He was glorified. The Spirit had come on them, and now they're recounting. It's like, oh my gosh. They're studying Scripture and looking at these things. It's like, we, we were there. We missed the fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, or they saw it and didn't know it. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Uh, point page nine. Uh, notice the crowd goes out to meet Jesus. Alexander, the same thing. Uh, point 14. Jesus, okay, this is worth reading. Jesus does not ride a horse to fulfill Zechariah 9, 10 until Revelation 19, 11. Now, this, this is like ended last time after we shut the camera off. Uh, and I'm hoping going through this is going to help either raise some questions or clarify some things uh, about the second coming. Because, uh, and again, I don't want to say something that's going to be considered blasphemous, but we've got Jesus coming from Basra, uh, garments stained in blood, having defeated the nations with no one to help him. We've got Jesus coming in uh, from the east in, in Ezekiel over the Mount of Olives, the glory of God returning. We've got him descending on the Mount of Olives 
from Acts. We've also got him here riding a white horse. Which ones of these are the white horse? Because it can't be him coming in Ezekiel, the glory of God, because he's coming and entering the temple, just like Palm Sunday, but the glory of God is coming. He's coming back in the clouds, just like he went in the clouds. He didn't go into the clouds in war. Uh, maybe that doesn't mean he doesn't, can't come back in war, but he went up in peace, and he's going to come back, and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and Zechariah is going to say, Mount of Olives will be split in two. He's coming from Edom, Isaiah 63, but he's already defeated the nations, and no one was there to help him. He says, I, my, own, my own zeal, my own wrath sustained me. But we're going to get into these verses, and you're going to see him very clearly fighting for Jerusalem. And when he fights for Jerusalem, uh, Israel's going to join with him and help fight the battle. But then we've got the Battle of Armageddon. Is that it? And then we've got uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I'm just, I'm just saying that I don't want to say I'm confused, but I am saying it. it I would be, I, I've always, ha, always have. You just, Jesus comes back. But when you look at this, it's like, it's, you're really shoving a lot of events into landing on the Mount of Olives, the glory of God coming. He's coming out of Edom. He's fighting the battle of Armageddon. Israel's going to be fighting with him for Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 ends with the nations having surrounded Jerusalem. Well, if the nations have surrounded Jerusalem, Why is he coming out of Edom having already defeated the nations? I mean, these are just questions. It's like there's got to be some kind of an order or sequence to this, and I don't know the answer, and I don't want to accept the answer. Well, it's all the same thing. Don't don't ask questions. And maybe there's no answer that we can put our minds around, but I'm still not just going to say, well, it's just the same. Well, here, here's Revelation 19, 11 through 16. The point, reason I'm reading this is this is Jesus coming back but he's clearly on a horse like Alexander was, but different. Then I saw heaven open, okay? Heaven is opened. And behold, a white horse, not a white donkey. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, see, your king comes to you righteous, having salvation, uh, and humble. The one sitting on it is Faithful and True, and in righteousness... He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are ruling crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now again, if it's Isaiah 63, robe dipped in blood, splattered with blood. It's, they says, why, why is your robe? It's not the blood of the cross. It's clearly the blood of the nations that he's just trampled on, like the wine press that he tramples in Revelation. So now he's got uh, a robe dipped in blood. You guys say, is, is this from the crucifixion? You can wonder that in, in this verse, but compared to the wine press in Revelation, compared to Isaiah 63, this is blood from the battle. And notice. He is coming out of heaven on the horse, making war, and he doesn't come in his clean garments. They're already got blood on them. So are they, is this coming from Isaiah, his blood-scattered garments, and then he's going to go back and make another entry for another battle? I'm not giving you an answer. I'm just saying, could that be? And the armies of hell, okay, his clothes, 
he, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And there you have it. That is Jesus. And the armies of heaven, and again, are these saints coming back with him, or are these the armies of heaven? The, like the, the uh, Lord of hosts means he's the commander of the armies of heaven, the, the mil- militant forces of the angelic world. I'm going to say right now, and the armies of heaven, the angelic hosts are coming back with him. He's coming back with a militant angelic force. And the armies of heaven, which he could have called in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter drew his sword, he said, put your sword. I could call a legion of angels. Peter, put your... Well, you think I can't call a legion of angels? They're just waiting to come. Maybe waiting for this verse. But here, and the armies of heaven that he could have called in the Garden of Gethsemane are coming with him on this case. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Now, fine linen, white and pure may lean towards awe. These are the saints with the pure white garments of the being glorified. Or it could be angels in white garments, white and pure. The following, and, and we're following him on white horses. Well, is that saints? Or you saw horses in Zechariah, different angels riding horses. So, you know, if it's angelic forces riding white horses in white garments, it matches angels. But you could say saints. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. With which to strike down the nations gives the impression they're not struck down yet when he's coming out of Edom, or Isaiah 63, he's coming out having already struck the nations, and he did it by himself. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And again, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, which if you go through Revelation, that wrath of God would include the trumpets and the bowls. So now this is him coming to execute those those are following them up finishing up uh again when it says fury of the wrath of god because at some point the wrath of god is finished and if the wrath of god is finished here he comes with the wrath of god it's like well wait 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 it's already been all poured out again i'm not giving you an answer i'm just saying these are some keys that need to be connected on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords and I write here, this is uh, when Zechariah 9.10 is fulfilled, or at least these verses that are going to be coming. Uh, verse 9, not, verse 9, nine of Zechariah and verse 9.10 are remarkably different. Uh, Palm Sunday and the second coming are also remarkably different. Without the Gospels in the New Testament, we would, like the disciples, be unable to see the stark difference, possibly, between 9.9 and 9.10. Okay, with that being said, we're on page one of the second set of notes. And now we're going to continue reading in 9.9, but we're going to read down through uh, verse 17. Uh, We're going into the next day. We're going to start now talking about chapter 9, verse 10, and what takes place. Because that is now, God is going to come uh, in 9.10, Yahweh, the King, is going to come in 910 and he's going to begin to wage war he's going to be, be begin to regather israel to protect israel not scatter them and it's going to be based on the blood of the covenant now to understand this and i hope this helps i showed it to you a couple weeks ago 
I went through and tried to highlight in detail. There are, uh, in, the, in these verses, there are three groups or people, pronouns. There are the Jews, the people living in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Ephraim, northern Israel, in the land of Israel at that time in history. They're referred to as daughter of Zion, you, your prisoners, and your prisoners would be Jews, as we read this, Jews that are in, scattered in other lands. They've been taken captive into other lands, and then them. So daughter of Zion, you, your prisoners, them, those are all references to the Jews. There's 18 times it mentions though that group in these verses. Then there's going to be the king, or we could say the royal man, uh, the, the, the root of David, the Messiah, uh, and he's going to be called your king, he and his, and that's referred to four times. When it says your king, he, him, it's talking about not Yahweh, it's talking about the man that Yahweh is going to deliver, and that man is going to deliver the Jews. And then there's going to be Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to be referred to as the Lord, all capital letters, His also, and the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts meaning the Lord of armies, the Lord of the heavenly angelic armies. And, 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 and also the word I, because he's going to be speaking. So when it says I, it's Yahweh speaking about the king who's going to deliver the people or do something with the people. And I, that helped me to break this out. Otherwise, I start stumbling through this. So here we go. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, that's the Jews, in the day that this happens. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, and again, that would be 30 A.D., the people at that time. Behold, your king is coming to you. The man, the royal man, is coming to you, the Jews. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, now that's, we've already talked about that. That was 30 A.D., I think, clearly. Now, chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. So now this would be Yahweh speaking. On another day in the future, not addressed in the New Testament, they don't even go there. They write the New Testament, like I said last time, in anticipation of this verse being, they know this verse is going to be fulfilled, they just know it hasn't happened yet. So it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he... Who's he? The king. See, the, the guy who rode in on a donkey in 9-9, now Yahweh says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. So Yahweh says, I'm going to do this, and when I do this, he, the king, will establish his kingdom. So once again, the man is going to be able to establish his kingdom of peace. The, the, the royal son, the, the king, will be able to establish his royal peace when Yahweh, well, he's going to get rid of any kind of the, the, the cut off, means remove. I'll show you that word. It means to destroy, to cut off, to remove the chariot from Ephraim. That's northern Israel. 
uh, and the war horse from Jerusalem, meaning the, the nation's weapons uh, are gone. In fact, you could put the bow, the war horse, and the chariot all together. The war horse could be pulling the chariot that's pulling, or the, the bow rider is in the chariot being pulled by the war horse. You, can have, you don't have to do that, but you can, it just, I'm going to remove all this. I'm going to remove the enemy from you. And when I remove the nations from you, then the man will be able to rule the kingdom. So once again, you see Yahweh delivering the man, and the man is going to establish the kingdom for the Jews. Now, this right here is the hypostatic union. We call it Jesus, where God became a man, and now God is delivering the man. And that's where I mentioned that last time, Jesus, he was able to say, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I take it up. But yet, clearly, in Romans chapter 1 and other places, God showed that Jesus was his son by raising him from the dead. So Yahweh is going to demonstrate that this man is the son of God by raising him from the dead. But Jesus, as the man, says, don't get me wrong. Nobody's going to touch me until I lay my life down. And when I'm ready, I'll take my life back up. So you're doing it yourself. I thought Yahweh was doing it. Okay, there's a riddle for you. Figure that out. It's similar to the riddle he gave them when he says, now if David's son is going to be the king, why does he say, the Lord says to my Lord? And they couldn't answer because that would mean the son of David is God. And he's like, we can't, we don't know the answer. And that's the same thing here. Yahweh is going to raise the man from the grave because he is the son of God. But when the man was talking, he says, no one's going to take my life, and I'll take it up myself, because that was God in the man. So again, it's like, what are you talking it's, it's not really a riddle. It's just, so again, that, that helps you see that, or at least confuses you. Okay. Once I, Yahweh, cut off the chariots, he will speak peace to the nations. God's taken away their weapons, and now he says, okay, here, here's how we'll do this. Uh, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. Chapter 9, verse 11. That's what happens to the nations. Chapter 9, verse 11. As for you. Now, who is you? I mean, I, when I first read this, you know, and I was studying, it's like, you. Well, he must be talking to the believers. He must be talking to the Christians, the church in Corinth. Okay, he, he's talking to, if you follow my setup here, he's talking to the Jews that are there in Jerusalem at that time. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now, if, as for you Jews, because of the blood of my covenant with you, now who is my? My is Yahweh's covenant with the Jews, and that covenant that Yahweh made with the Jews is the Mosaic covenant that says, if you disobey, I will disperse you to the nations, but I will bring you back before the end. So because of the blood of my covenant with you, guess what's going to happen? I, Yahweh, will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now again, at first, it's like when I first read, and again, you don't have to agree with me. This is me having to iron this out. When I first read that, it's like, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Hmm. Well, when demons are cast out, they go through a dry place. Maybe the waterless pit must be the underworld. I will set you free. That must be Jesus dying for our sins, the blood of the covenant, the new covenant. He sets us free. We come out of hell. We come out of Hades. We're set free. Cool. Yeah, if that's the only verse you're reading, but you put it in context, there's nothing in here about death. There's nothing in here about sin. There's nothing in here about the church. 
uh, there's nothing in here about the nations except he's going to defeat the nations, then they're going to come and live in peace. But as for you, meaning that was what I'm going to do to the nations, but as for you, which means not the nations, but you, you who? The Jews, because of my covenant of of blood with you, the Jews, that'd be the Mosaic covenant, I, Yahweh, will set your prisoners free. Now, who are their prisoners? They've been scattered. They've been taken captive in all the lands, and they're in, in a sense, waterless pits. They're, they're, they've been taken away. Now, again, you don't have to accept that interpretation. But everything stays consistent. I will set your prisoners free at this time in history. So he's fighting the nations. He's restoring uh, peace. And now he's going to, basically right here, he's regathering Israel. Uh, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, pit, chapter 9, verse 12. Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Your stronghold would be Jerusalem, the temple, O prisoners of hope. They are prisoners in a waterless pit, but they were prisoners of hope. They've been there for years in hope, knowing this day is coming. And that's the theme of the Jews. I mean, you can see it carved in different places on the Temple Mount of the Jews coming and visiting and carving in Hebrew throughout the ages inscriptions about this kind of a hope. We will rise again. So it fits, in my mind, it fits. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold. Return to Jerusalem, O prisoners of hope. Today, I, Yahweh, declare that I will restore to you double. Meaning, I'm going to restore you. It's not just going to be what it used to be. It's going to be double what you've ever seen before. I am restoring you, Israel. Um, For I have bent Judah as my bow. Now, this is where it gets... Again, go back to where all those little arrows I had right there of the Lord coming and doing stuff. For I, Yahweh, have bent Judah as my bow. In other words, I'm going to bring them in, and now that they're back in the land, I'm, Judah is going to be like, he's driven out the war chariots of the nations, but now Judah is going to be like the Lord's bow. And I made Ephraim its arrow. So now the Lord is fighting, but just like the Lord was moving through Syria, Phoenicia, down through Philistia, but it wasn't the Lord, it was Alexander the Great, and the Lord took, you know, said it was him. Now, the Lord is saying, I am going to do this, but it's going to be Judah's a bow, and Ephraim's an arrow for the bow. He's using southern Israel, Judah. Ephraim is the largest tribe of the northern ten tribes, and it's kind of like a code name, a, a just a, a name for northern Israel, Ephraim. So when he says judah or jerusalem when he says jerusalem he means judah when he says ephraim he means the north so you've already got the whole 12 nations that's that would that's a reference to the regathered tribes and i'm going to bend them like a bow and use them like an arrow in that bow so the lord is fighting the battle but it's no different than the lord marching through syria and destroying tyre and philistia he didn't do any of it alexander and his troops did it so now judah restored israel is now the weapons that the lord is using again you don't have to accept that but that's the way i'm reading this he says return to your stronghold O prisoners of hope and when you're restored today i declare that i will restore to you double for i have bent judah as my bow i have made ephraim its arrow now watch this i yahweh will stir up your sons O zion your sons that have been returned, I'm going to stir them up like he stirred up the sea. They're going to, I'm going to get them ready for something. 
against your sons, O Greece. I'm going to restore Israel. They're going to be my own weapons. I'm going to stir them up, and I'm going to go to war against Greece. And again, that was not, that's not a strange statement being said in 518, because as we talked about before, Greece was already rising. You see Xerxes goes to war against Greece. Uh, he, he, that's when Esther is, you know, before Esther is in the book of Esther, he gets all of his leaders and he's going to show all of his weapons because he's on his way to war to get defeated by the Greeks across the Aegean Sea. So they're already a, a force here. Again, so meaning they were, they were known of, but yet they're talking eschatologically. But then we've got this right here, Alexander coming, which we just read about earlier in this chapter. Alexander dies. He leaves his generals behind. They divide up all of his lands, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies. They all start fighting. And pretty soon, you've got the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucids in Syria coming down. So again, you've got one of those overlays. Is, this, is he talking about the, the, the Maccabean Wars or the Syrian Wars? Or is he talking about another day when he returns? He's clearly talking about the, the, Israel being restored because Israel wasn't restored before the Maccabean revolt. They are restored. They're already restored when this prophecy is being given. So this has to be another restoration at the end, but you just have that, you've got to stop and look at the solution wars. But nonetheless, I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, that he's just brought back, against your sons, O Greece, which makes you wonder uh, about the Antichrist and where the Antichrist comes from and how you know, those, those battles of the final days are going to go. Again, I, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying, know that verse there. When you start putting your eschatological pieces together, there's that verse. Somehow in the future, Zion is going to be going to war with Greece. And that Greece can be Greece or you know, it, it, in Alexander's day, it extended across into Asia Minor, even down into Syria was Greece and Grecian territory. Okay. Um, against your sons of Greece, and weld you, Israel, like a warrior's sword. Now watch this, 914. When that begins to happen, then the Lord, Yahweh, will appear over them. And that's a manifestation. He'll, he'll appear above them and everyone will see him which now again when we get into the notes i mean we got just verse after verse of the lord appearing which we think of you know at, at the rapture at the second coming after the sixth seal but anyway then the lord will appear and i've got that word big because that's a key word i mean that can tie in. it maybe doesn't but he's going to be appear. the lord isn't seen in this battle see you've got Ju J judah and ephraim fighting Where's the Lord? Well, he's fighting through them. But all of a sudden, while they're fighting, the Lord appears. You'd be like, here comes Alexander. Oh, that must be the Lord. But wait, no, boom. The Lord appears, and you've got Alexander boots on the ground, and the Lord is over him. That's not what happened, but that'd be like that. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. Now, whenever the Lord returns, there's going to be a trumpet blast. There's going to be lightning. He's going to be in the air. He's going to be over them. Coming in the clouds, the Lord will sound the trumpet. Did I just say trumpet? <laughs> when he returns, there's going to be lightning and the trumpet. Here he appears. His arrows go forth like lightning, and the Lord will sound the trumpet. This is one of the times that the Lord sounds the trumpet. There's always talks about the, the, the trumpet of the Lord or the last trumpet or the sound of the trumpet. Well, here it says the Lord, Yahweh God, 
will sound the trumpet. He's sounding the trumpet. And will march for, in other words, sounding the trumpet to go to war. It's the battle cry to engage in war. And you've got to get an idea here. He's appearing over who? He's appearing over the sons of Zion who are at battle with the sons of Greece. And now he appears over them like a flash. He sends out his arrows like lightning, sounds the trumpet, and a call to battle. So now you've got the Lord, and you're going to see the end of Zechariah several places where he is fighting in those last days with Judah, uh, boots on the ground, somehow. Now you can make this all a metaphor, but this is already a metaphor being turned into you know, describing an actual event. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth to the whirlwinds of the south. Remember the south. That's where he comes, marching with his garment stained. In Edom, he's marched from the south, but he went to battle by himself. Chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them, the Jews. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full on a bowl, on a, full like a bowl. That idea right there we'll talk about it when we get there. That they're being attacked by enemies' sling stones, and they're not being hit by them. The, the image is they're devouring them. Like sometimes the sword goes off and devours its flesh, you know, devours, it, it's killing people. Here, they're being attacked by sling stones, but the Jews, the warriors uh, that God is fighting over, are just consuming them. It's like, <laughs> like throwing, you know, M&Ms at them. And they're just eating them up. And they're going to eat so much, they're going to have to eat so many of the weapons, and the idea is not how many weapons they're eating, but all the attacks are just absorbed by them, which means they're winning, They've got so much victory that they're like, like they're drunk and roaring with wine. It's like, like these guys, uh, it's like a party. I mean, it's like these guys are just being attacked. They're just devouring everything, and they're devouring all the weapons so much. So if it was alcohol, it'd be like a drunken party. They've over, they're like drunk, full like a bowl, not talking about alcohol, nothing about alcohol in there or being drunk, but it's the idea that they've consumed so much victory that they're roaring. So it doesn't even look like a battle. Drenched like the corners of an altar. Like when you take the blood in a bowl and dump it on the corners of the altar, there's just blood every. It's like they look like they've got blood poured on like an altar. They've got so much victory. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, their God, will save them. As the flock of his people, for they, for like the jewels of a crown, they, the Jews, shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And that now talks about they're going to establish, they're going to have a victory. They're going to be established, they're going to be established in the land. And now the next generation, the young men and the young women are flourishing. It's they're in the they're in the, the what we'd say the millennium and i would guess i'm out of time right now so yes um we need to pick up right here next week and um you, 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 yeah i'll quit but that's i'm going to explain all those verses give you more details in there and you can see all the notes right there uh i'd like to keep going but obviously i'm going to quit Thank you for listening. I hope that helps, or at least causes some... I think there's a lot of things in these next verses that uh, are going to kind of open up some more eschatological insights 
Um, and I'm excited to see it come to pass. I'll, pr- I'll pray, and then we're ready to go. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you've given to us in your word. And like prisoners of hope, that is us waiting for your return. And we look forward to that day and ask that we may be faithful to you in times where we do not see. We do not see you appearing over us, but we know that you are there and that you have a plan, and your word is working in our life, and your spirit is leading and guiding us. We do thank you for the victory that we achieve and the victory that we're looking forward to in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time.